You're about to hear the 3CR Community Radio podcast of In Psychedelia. For more information on this show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, or find us on our website. Good afternoon, my name's Nick, this is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on digital and also streaming live at 3cr.org.au and what a day it is today, the 20th of September, beautiful spring day and we're celebrating something along with uh, people in Mexico, the United States, Canada, uh, all across the world, in in the UK as well, Uh, it's the 920 Coalition, of course using um, American date conventions, the 920 Coalition was formed uh, for people across the world to create events and celebrate the psilocybin mushroom or magic mushroom and we will be doing just that this afternoon at the Fitzroy Beer Garden. If you are interested in coming along, it's free. We appreciate donations. We'll be there from 3.30 this afternoon. We'll have two speakers uh, speaking about local Australiana psilocybin species and also uh, visionary art and how uh, the psychedelic experience affects uh, that, that visionary art uh, it, construction. We'll be there from 3.30, so it's just on Gertrude Street, just near the corner of Gertrude and Smith Street, if you want to join us there. Uh, also, the 420 picnic is on right now in uh, Treasury... No, not Treasury Gardens, the other one, Flagstaff Gardens, <laughs> down uh, down in Melbourne. They'll be there uh, until about 5 o'clock this afternoon, and at 4.20, of course, uh, we'll be there um, at celebration time. Uh, also, music today is... Uh, has been provided to us by Harp Media, who are presenting a VIP session this Thursday, the 24th of September, at Grumpy's Green. So we'll have a couple of tracks that were provided by Harp Media uh, just in promotion of that. So uh, also thank you to Freedom of Species. They will be back next week from 2 o'clock. And uh, we're going to jump right into uh, into some news. And Psychedelia News of the Week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use even when they're experiencing some issues. So they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from family members or people at work or or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say oh well then the, the, the government are not looking after us and therefore it's seen as a law and order issue rather than a a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a public health basis. Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. That's right. And uh, joining us for our uh, drug news of the week is Ash. Ash, are you there? I am here. Can you <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, first, first story off the ranks. Uh, so this week, the Victorian Ombudsman released a report on um, prisoners and uh, their rehabilitation within the prison system. And it's found that 44.1% of prisoners are reoffending within two years of release. Um, among the recommendations, the 25 recommendations from the Ombudsman, was that 
programs such as the drug court and curry court programs were very successful and should be expanded. And the Justice Department has given in principle support to the recommendation on drug courts, uh, subject to funding and collaboration with the Department of Court Services. Excellent. Triple J this week, Triple J Hack uh, did a small report on drug driving and there was a very curious quote from one of the uh, police officers who said, the aim of random drug testing is to deter those persons who are partaking in illicit drugs from driving a vehicle. Note that he doesn't say that we're trying to uh, get rid of people who are impaired and cannot drive and will be a danger on the drive. He's just saying people that use drugs. And this is a a problem that's been exacerbated by the fact that uh, drug testing used by police across Australia does not test for impairment. It just tests for metabolites, which can sometimes stay in people's bloodstream uh, for days, if not weeks, after the event, after somebody has taken a drug. Uh, Unfortunately, last night, a young man from Albury uh, died after attending the DEFCON 1 dance party in Sydney's West. He was found unconscious in his tent around 11.30 and attempts by his friends and paramedics uh, failed to to revive him. Um, This is the same festival that uh, gathered some attention in 2013 after a man died there from taking three pills. So they suspect that drugs might be involved, but that hasn't been confirmed yet. It's very sad to hear. We'll keep an ear on that. Uh, Grog, Grog Watch, which is a uh, publication from the Australian Drug Foundation, uh, published a piece this week on uh, Leyenhelm's inquiry into... That's Senator David Leyenhelm. Uh, Leyenhelm's inquiry into uh, into freedoms, personal freedoms, and how our laws affect those. And there was one quote in particular that I thought was uh, quite interesting from Grog Watch this week, and it said, don't we have a responsibility to protect the individual from their behaviour if it harms them. Government already protects others from alcohol harm by drink-drive legislation, for example, and try to protect protect drinkers by advising them on safe, low-risk levels of use so they can look after themselves. But is that all? We think if people continue to disregard that safe drinking message and put themselves at risk, something more should be done. And I thought that was a um, a quite authoritarian approach at the end there, potentially authoritarian. Now, I, I don't know um, w- what they mean by something more should be done, um, but it's, it's a difficult balance that needs to occur in curbing people's um, uh, freedoms and, and looking after people. Because once you say to somebody... I need to protect you from something that you're doing that is harming you. You've, you've completely removed them from the conversation. You've decided what's best for them. You don't want to talk to them about that anymore because you know what's best for them. That is disempowering for people, and it's the worst way to uh, address those sorts of issues. Yeah, and it's a difficult uh, position to decide where you begin and end with that. Should we lock up motocross riders because they might injure themselves? Exactly. Um, the, the smoking ban in Victorian prisons is off to a little bit of a rocky start uh, after the riots uh, a few months ago. There's been a, um, uh, a couple of prisoners have fallen ill, one seriously so, after smoking or injecting concoctions made of nicotine patches, tea leaves, and in some cases battery acid, as it was reported. Mm. Um, they've been boiling the nicotine patches to concentrate the nicotine and then soaking the brew into tea leaves to dry it out. So I think uh, one of the problems there is that the remand centre has very high numbers at the moment because of the law and order approaches put in by the previous government. So people are kind of coming straight off the street and can't even have a smoke. And, and mm, that is a bit worrying. difficult for some of them.
article in The Guardian from the UK this week uh, writing about an MDMA resurgence in the UK. Uh, This was following a drop-off of use in around 2008, 2009, and an uptake of uh, what would have been commonly called legal highs. Um, These were sold in various uh, head shops and and those sorts of shops across um, across the the UK, Uh, but they've dropped off again because there are various dangers associated with them. A lot of them haven't had a lot of research done, uh, and now MDMA has resurged and that's in the UK. There was a report released this week. It was an Australian-led review of uh, popular antidepressant drug paroxetine, and it found that it, it's been linked to youth suicide, and by their reading of the data, it's no better than a placebo. Um, the research team also uncovered evidence that the drug's manufacturer uh, downplayed its deadly side effects and exaggerated its benefits. Um, this is the drug sold under the names of Arapax and Paxil here in Australia. So if listeners want some sort of further background on that, Ben Goldacre's book, uh, Bad Pharma, really covers the way that pharmaceutical companies uh, promote their science and interact with government agencies. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance published a good piece this week on uh, people who are using... Uh, this was actually written by somebody who um, uh, is experienced with this, using some of the synthetic cannabinoid-type uh, drugs that are out there, sometimes called synthetic cannabis or uh, legal highs or s- synthetic smoke, whatever it's called. But people are actually using that to stay out of jail if they've been given... Um, uh, if they've been told that any drug testing, uh, if that comes back, then they'll go to jail. So people are using this to avoid that, even though there is um, a lot less research around these things and there uh, are some dangers associated with some of them. But problem is there's dozens, if not hundreds of them out there. Very hard to tell. That was from Drug Policy Alliance this week. Uh, uh, that's me. Yeah. That's, oh, that's all I've got for this I, week. I, there was one more. Huffington Post also had a uh, a post this week on using psychedelics and um, saying that it shouldn't be a crime. Uh, that was also a piece that was in response to the 920 Coalition celebrating magic mushrooms this week, uh, their healing potential, their potential uh, to be used for uh, all sorts of uh, practical and positive purposes. Uh, all of those stories and more can be found on our Facebook page, which you can access by, by visiting 3cr.org.au following the links to the Encyclopedia program page and then uh, jumping onto our Facebook where we've got uh, links to all those stories and more. Now, Ash, you're, um, you're out and about at the moment. Can you uh, just give us a little inkling of where you are and what you're up to? I am down at the 420 Cannabis Rally down in Flagstaff Garden. Uh, it's a beautiful day for a bit of a picnic in the park. There's probably... Maybe a hundred people here, all scattered about. Excellent. It's hard to tell who's part of the, the rally and who's not, because I mean, I guess that's the point. Cannabis users are just people like everybody else. Exactly. Um, so I've also got Matt Riley here standing next to me, being patiently waiting. <laughs> um, would you like me to uh, put yeah. him on? So yeah, let's let's have a chat with Matt here. Riley. So Matt Riley is uh, from Free Cannabis Victoria. He is the organizer of the 420 rallies, um, which uh, are going to be happening monthly up until um, summer. Is that right, Matt? Uh, hang on, I'll just put oh, you on. Sure. <laughs> here we go, Nick. Yeah. Hi, Nick. Hello, Matt. Welcome to Ed Psychedelia. How are you? I'm I'm well. How are you? <laughs> Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm great, thanks. Thanks so, for having me. That's, that's all right. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Tell us about how the uh, 420 picnic is going down at Flagstaff Gardens today. Uh, 
so far so good. Um, the crowd's uh, steadily growing. I, I'm, uh, I guess probably about uh, four o'clock is when we'll hit our peak. Um, I'm not expecting it to be as big as April, but I think we'll definitely get a couple of thousand here. Um, I'm expecting the police to turn. In fact, I think they just have arrived over on the far side there, yes. Um, and I've spoken to them uh, in the last couple of days, and, and they're very happy with how we're going about things. And um, so I'm expecting them to, uh, similarly to uh, what they did in April, I think they'll be uh, walking around smiling and uh, enjoying the afternoon just as much as everyone else. Um, I don't think there'll be any dramas at all. And, uh, yeah, the weather's on our side, so everything's going well. Yes, you got a beautiful day for the, uh, for the picnic this afternoon. And, and have people brought along some snacks? Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, lots of stuff going around. Someone gave me a brownie just before, although mm. I'm not sure that was purely a snack. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, there's all sorts of stuff um, here. There's there's lots of interesting glassware, which is great to see, and uh, and lots of groups sitting around in in um, you know circles on the, on on the lawn. And uh, I guess as the afternoon goes on, the the lawn will fill in. Um, but uh, yeah, there's constant stream of people walking over, so yeah, it's, and, it's looking good. And this is only the the first of a series of spring and summer 420 picnics that you've got planned, is that right? That's right. We're hoping to have uh, one pretty much every month apart from December, um, although we've just uh, got to work out exactly where we're at with um, Melbourne City Council, um, so I'm going to wait till the end of today and make sure that uh, you know the gardens are left in a good state before I um, go ahead and announce the next one. Um, but as long as everything goes well today and uh, we clean up after ourselves, which I'm sure we will, um, there's no reason for us not to have another one next month. Absolutely. So, well, uh, that's the plan. Sounds good. Uh, and you're down at Flagstaff Gardens. You'll be there till about, what, five o'clock this afternoon? I think so. Look, I think the weather's going to be on our side. So I, I imagine there'll be people here till, um, you know, even later. Um, I, I would expect uh, it'll be similar to a few of the recent ones where I've left it around sort of 6.30 and there's still been a couple of hundred people sitting around um, enjoying the evening. And, and, and by the weather today, I think that's probably going to be the case. Sounds good. Thanks for, um, thanks for chatting to us today, Matt. No worries. And thanks. enjoy worries, the afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Cheers. So that's the 420 picnic happening right now down at Flagstaff Gardens. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. This is in Psychedelia. And while you're at the 3CR website, head along to the Psychedelia program page where you can find links to us on Facebook, Twitter, and also... Um, uh, the website where you can get in touch with us. My name's Nick, and we are uh, talking mushrooms today. It's uh, part of the 920 Coalition, uh, global uh, global coalition of organisations that have come together to celebrate the magic mushroom uh, today. And I'll just give you a, a bit of a, a brief history of uh, the psilocybin mushroom. So uh, going back 5,000 before the Common Era, BCE, um, so about 7,000 years ago, there are some ancient paintings that seem to depict a relationship between humans and mushrooms. 
ritual use of mushrooms by uh, Central American cultures between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. There's a lot of um, speculation in these areas as well because it's hard to tell exactly what people were up to 2,000 to 7,000 years ago. There is a bit of speculation, but the mushrooms do turn up in the art a lot. Uh, Europeans began prohibiting use of non-alcoholic intoxicants, including the mushroom, in the 1500s with the spread of colonialism to uh, South and Central America. Tio Nunnuctal, and I'm probably not pronouncing that uh, right, is the uh, name given to uh, the the mushroom, or it was uh, not not until uh, recently confirmed, but uh, Tio Nunnuctal vaguely translates to wondrous mushroom, or Flesh of the Gods. In the early 1930s, a amateur Austrian anthropologist named Rod, uh, Robert Weitleimer witnessed a Mazatec mushroom ceremony, while another amateur Austrian botanist named Dr. Blas Pablo Rico claimed that mushrooms uh, were not used. So there was a bit of contention at the time in the uh, in the 30s over whether or not these uh, ancient uh, these cultures were using the mushroom. Uh, then comes along Harvard ethnobotanist Richard Schultz, uh, who supported the idea that Tiananmen did in fact refer to a mushroom and uh, urge for further work to be done, further research to be done. Uh, World War II put things on hold for a while, but in the early 1950s, an amateur mycologist by the name of uh, Roger Gordon Wasson, I believe is his name, and his wife Valentina Pavlovna, uh, travelled to Mexico and participated in some traditional mushroom ceremonies with Mazatec Curandera Maria uh, Sabina, who we're going to hear part of her songs later um, from that time when... uh, uh, Wasson was in uh, Mexico. In 1956, after they'd found that there were mushrooms being used um, ceremoniously in Central and um, South American uh, cultures, uh, the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz were asked to help extract the active ingredient, isolate and extract the active ingredient in mushrooms. And LSD fando- uh, founder and Sandoz chemist uh, Albert Hoffman was the one who isolated psilocybin and psilocin and developed a synthesis technique. In 1957, uh, Life magazine published an article on Wasson's uh, mushroom adventures, which was widely distributed, and it was um, one of the first widely distributed um, articles on the mushroom, and information spread then in Western culture, and mushrooms became part of the first psychedelic movement in the 1960s, late 50s and 1960s. Uh, come... 1968, possession of the mushroom was made illegal in the US. Research, though, continued into the uh, 1970s before being put on hold effectively. Uh, Jumping back a second, 1962, the Good Friday experiment uh, happened, um, and the Good Friday experiment is an infamous experiment um, that was performed at Johns Hopkins to find out if uh, some of the divinity students, the, the people that were studying religion, would have a mystical experience on Good Friday as part of a, uh, a Good Friday um, sermon. And it turned out a lot of them did, and a lot of them also said that it was one of the most um, important experiences that they'd had in their life, uh, or one of the top five in their life. 1971 comes along, and the United Nations Convention on 
psychotropic substances was passed, all treat all, all signatories to that treaty had to ban all the plants and all the chemicals that were um, that were listed in that convention. And um, psilocybin mushrooms were one of the uh, one of the ones that were in there. Um, Australian uh, law passed uh, a, a bit later to include that uh, that restriction, and. Um, now we're in a situation where mushrooms, although they are native, although there is pretty much no black market for them, there's uh, very low abuse potential and they have high therapeutic uh, uh, potential and research um, uh, potential. Uh, they are a, um, a, a highly class, they are the most prohibited class of, uh, of drug uh, in Australia. Trafficking is considered uh, two grams of mushrooms and the police can be rather arbitrary with their measuring of that sometimes, um, as in they might just, technically it's psilocybin, which is a, a molecule in the mushroom, but uh, a lot of the times they'll just measure the mushroom and call that the amount. Uh, marketing amount is one kilogram, commercial quali- quantity is two kilograms. Um, even though one in 10 Australians have used a hallucinogen, which includes um, uh, magic mushrooms, and one in 100 of us uh, have used a hallucinogen, including mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, uh, sorry, uh, LSD, uh, mescaline, these sorts of things, in the past 12 months. That's a quick rundown for you, and I've got a uh, a piece that I've prepared um, with a bit more information on some of the research. We've had a bit of a psychedelic resurgence um, in the past uh, 15 years or so, in the 2000s, and there's more research uh, going, going into these things, and here's a bit of a uh, rundown on what's been going on. and then up to Bellington. And then we found the promised land. And the promised land was green hills covered in gold-topped mushrooms. Well, another really interesting study is one looking at the therapeutic application of psilocybin in treatment of drug dependence. So, why would that work, one could ask. So back again in the 50s and 60s, there were some preliminary studies suggesting uh, that LSD could be effective for treatment of drug dependence. And if you look anthropologically within indigenous cultures, the, uh, uh, drugs such as mescaline and DMT have been used uh, to treat drug dependence. And finally, if you just look at the history of the natural history of drug dependence. It's not uncommon to find many cases in which people spontaneously quit using alcohol or drugs or cigarettes for that matter because they've had some kind of mystical type experience, some kind of opening uh, and that's a, and can be transformative. And so we're now uh, looking explicitly about whether psilocybin can facilitate treatment of cigarette smoking by combining psilocybin with a cognitive behavioral approach to cigarette smoking and also using guided imagery to facilitate treatment. It's just a pilot study, but I would, I'm pleased to report that the three volunteers who have participated to date, all of whom had many multiple quit, quit attempts and had failed, previously are all uh, smoking smoke-free and one as long as a year. Ah, 
tripping balls. So what I'll be talking about today is um, the potential psychological mechanisms of action um, that are going on in the psilocybin facilitated treatment. Um, to briefly orient you, uh, volunteers are first cleared through a pretty rigorous um, psychological and physical screening process, uh, after which um, we will go through four uh, weekly meetings, which are basically counseling meetings, where we get to know one another, we build a sense of trust and rapport, uh, and at that point we also set the quit date, which is the, um, the first psilocybin session. Um, the eight to ten hours uh, that we spend beforehand, like I said, is very important in building that trust and rapport, which is uh, useful for having uh, pr more profound and safe uh, s sessions under the influence of psilocybin, of course. Um, so after the participants have quit and after their first session, we ask them uh, whether the psilocybin had helped them to quit smoking in their opinion, and if so, how. And these data uh, were collected uh, in self-report questionnaire questionnaires roughly two, uh, between one and two weeks after their uh, quit date. Um, so participants uh, were asked, as I said, uh, how did they think the psilocybin helped them to quit smoking? And we present them with a list of options. Uh, these are kind of our best guesses of how we thought it might be working. Um, and so these are the five options that are on our questionnaire. Um, and there are also uh, two other responses, one being that the psilocybin did not help them to quit and the other being uh, an other response where they get to write in their, their own responses. Um, this is a sort of circle all of that apply um, scenario. So we have 83.3% um, of respondents saying that they thought that the uh, psilocybin helped change their orientation toward the future so that long-term benefits would outweigh the immediate desires to smoke. Uh, and so that was the most um, po um, popularly endorsed um, reason that psilocybin was able to help them to quit smoking. Uh, and as you see in descending order, we also have that uh, psilocybin uh, su supposedly helped them to strengthen their belief in their ability to quit. Um, it helped them change their life priorities or values, such that smoking was no longer more important than quitting. And it also uh, helped them to reduce uh, stress involved with quitting, as well as reframing quitting as a spiritual task. So again, these were the um, items that we gave them and that they endorsed in that, uh, in that order. Um, none of the participants responded um, that the psilocybin session was not useful in quitting smoking. So that's also good news. Um, some of the other reasons that they did give us were uh, that the psilocybin sessions increased their awareness of the addictive process, um, that the uh, psilocybin sessions had given them increased determination to quit, um, also that they had a sense of greater space or distance between a smoking cravings and their behavioral response to those cravings. And uh, kind of like to think of that as the cravings um, kind of, you can see them coming is what the participants say. And when they have that, that extra sense of space, they're able to react in a way that's um, uh, novel. So not picking up a cigarette and smoking it. And uh, finally, one of our participants wrote in that by exploding the awareness of the preciousness of existence, voluntary choices of unhealthy practices are diminished, uh, which of course was one of the ones that we forgot to, to add to our list.
One of the things that shamans do traditionally is heal people. You know, before there were medical doctors, there were shamans. I'm going to tell you a bit about uh, the larger context that uh, gave rise to the research that will be the mainstay of this talk. There is an informal network of people called the Council on Spiritual Practices that I convened in about uh, 1994, and they are um, experts in some of the behavioral sciences and in religious studies and in history. Um, It's really a circle of elders that gathered to ask the question, Given what they know about psychoactive substances and the hallucinogen family, um, what could we do that would actually bring about a better world? So the vision was really about reducing avoidable suffering, happier people, joy, a happier world. And I guess my tip of the hat to the futurists in the room will be to say evolution, whatever that means. So if that means dramatic transformation of society or transhuman thinking, well, let's just put that under the category of evolution and say... You know, we don't want that to stop. Uh, A reason for having this point here is to say that not everyone really shares that vision. There are people uh, whose chosen focus and set of gifts is around art uh, or around increasing scientific knowledge, you know, primarily. And this is a little bit more of an engineering effort. This is actually about bringing about change in the world that isn't just about knowledge or just about art, but could include those things. Well, if you start with a vision of, you know, wanting to have a happier, better world with less avoidable suffering. That's a pretty lofty vision. And the question is, what do you do when you get up the next morning to bring that about, or next week, or next month? What's an an actionable agenda? And this group, because of some shared knowledge or belief in the power of entheogens, said, well, uh, we have a point of entry here. And the point of entry has to do with these strong, powerful, profound experiences that some people have, sometimes with substances, sometimes without. Uh, They're recorded throughout all the ages and all cultures. And they go by a bunch of different names. But there's a set of experiences that people report having, which after they've had them, they say, wow, that changed my life. And things begin unfolding differently. Understandings begin unfolding differently. When it goes well, which it does not always, but when it goes well, people say, huh, Uh, I think I'm probably a kinder person, probably a more generous person. And uh, we'd like for there to be more of that in the world. So that's our point of entry. What about these occasional, profound, potentially life-changing, potentially world-changing experiences? CSP thought that um, a way of bringing more attention to this would be through science. And there's a reason for that. In our modern culture, we've come to trust science. When I say we, I don't mean everyone in the room. I mean the culture as a whole. Modernity tends to trust science. Uh, In fact, it trusts science as maybe the ultimate oracle of truth. So if we could bring to bear high-quality science coming from an institution of very high regard, uh, that might bring attention not only to the substances, but arguably more importantly to those occasional life-changing experiences. And it would be important, again, to have this uh, come from an institution of high regard and for the science itself to be the highest quality that we can muster. 
simply so that it will withstand scientific scrutiny. Well, that led us uh, in time to a man at the Johns Hopkins University named Roland Griffiths, uh, a career psychopharmacologist who some years before that had actually taken up a personal practice of meditation, a disciplined practice of meditation. So with his career in experimental psychopharmacology on the one hand and personal interest in meditation, it was a pretty natural progression for him to say, wow, there's this other category of drugs that he had not studied before, the hallucinogens, which could bring about in a laboratory setting maybe some experiences that were related to what he was having in meditation, ashrams, and on the cushion. Um, It's understood generally that science lags practice. So we know that the measures that scientists have, uh, the kinds of things that we can look at in a controlled experimental environment, are pretty crude compared to what advanced practitioners and teachers have in their minds and hearts. But that's the best we've got. I just want to acknowledge that the kinds of results we'll talk about in a little bit, um, that's a pretty small piece of the experiential pie of what can happen with entheogens. So we eventually mounted a study uh, involving psilocybin, which is one of the principal psychoactive components uh, of a genus of mushrooms, uh, the name of which may be changing. Um, Thank you for elucidating that for us. Um, There are other chemicals that may be psychoactive in the mushrooms. Uh, Psilocin is actually in the human being the active uh, species. Psilocybin is converted in the body to psilocin. There are others as well. But psilocybin is the stable chemical that you can isolate from the mushrooms or synthesize from scratch um, and is therefore convenient when you want to do a controlled scientific study. It's considered to be a classical hallucinogen. I won't go through all these points, but uh, psychopharmacologists say classical hallucinogen to distinguish it from MDMA and ketamine and cannabis and other substances that may be considered to be entheogenic or psychedelic. Uh, These points are here. Um, This is how we would speak to a scientifically inclined audience trained in the science of uh, psychopharmacology of abusable drugs. Uh, We know that uh, hallucinogens are scheduled uh, in the most restricted class in the United States because they're considered to have high abuse potential. Uh, But what does that mean exactly? The National Institute on Drug Abuse in America considers the hallucinogens drugs of abuse but not drugs of addiction because they're not typically reinforcing. They don't reliably produce euphoria. So if you give them to laboratory animals, the animals will not choose to take more of the drug, as they typically would with cocaine, for example. Uh, We know that medical emergencies are quite rare. LSD and psilocybin are mentioned in only a teensy fraction of drug-related emergency department admissions. Um, And despite the fact that there's a low risk of actual physical addiction, and in the case of psilocybin, no known organic toxicity, uh, for example, to the liver or to the brain, there's still concern about abuse because of potential adverse psychiatric effects. Uh, That could even include something like panicked behaviors, which if you're an epidemiologist, that counts as toxicity. That counts as um, toxic. How about human research with psilocybin? When psilocybin was first isolated from psilocybin mushrooms uh, by Albert Huffman, uh, there began some study of psilocybin. And it wasn't very long before that research mostly stopped. It got um, caught up in the illegalization of psilocybin and the other hallucinogens as a consequence, really, of the drug excesses of the 1960s. Most of those early studies were done at a time when the science of pharmacology was younger, 
and most of the studies that were done with psilocybin did not involve what's called a control group or a comparison group. Uh, in other words, they were kind of like clinical case reports, published reports of what happens when um, a researcher takes them, him or herself, or a psychiatrist gives them to a patient. So decades later in 2006, uh, we undertook a study of psilocybin in order to determine the feasibility, again, to modern standards, of giving a high dose of psilocybin to healthy volunteers. Um, let me take a minute to explain why the emphasis on healthy volunteers. Much of the research that's uh, now taking place with hallucinogens is studying giving them to people who have psychiatric conditions. Uh, it could be something like anxiety or depression, secondary to a cancer diagnosis, or post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, there's now studies taking place of hallucinogens and related compounds as a treatment for cluster headaches. And obviously, all of those studies are working with uh, patient populations, people that are, by current Western medical standards, subnormal. And we wanted to cast the spotlight on what happens when people who, by current Western standards, are at normal or above normal. And um, there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, one is that probably accounts for most use of psilocybin. Most of the current illicit use of psilocybin is not uh, done by people who have psychiatric issues at clinical levels. And it would also cast light on, you know, maybe uh, revisiting at some point the legal status of psilocybin. That was uh, Albert Garcia from Johns Hopkins University, Robert Jesse, uh, Jesse there from the Council on Spiritual Practices, and uh, I believe there was meant to be a little bit from Roland Griffiths, but I'm not sure if that actually showed up. I've just had a couple of uh, technical issues, uh, but there, Roland Griffiths is a uh, researcher looking into the um, uh, looking into the, the mystical effects which can be uh, created through uh, the use of uh, psilocybin under controlled circumstances. Um, there was also meant to be a little part from a documentary, Little Saints, which is a documentary looking into uh, Mexican traditional use of the psilocybin mushroom. And there is also another documentary which will be uh, coming to Australia soon. They're still finishing up on it. It's called Psilocybin, A New Understanding, and it takes a good uh, look at some of the research projects that are going on around the world. It's incredibly helpful. It's more helpful than any other treatment I've ever had. The benefit will be even beyond what you can even think of. Quite frankly, it was like, you know, I'm being I'm being shown this amazing symphony video It's processing more than it normally would. It really is kind of a mind expanded state. And this is remarkable because psilocybin does in 30 seconds what antidepressants take three to four weeks to do. But it's about the experience, not the drug. And for that to have transformative effects and to mitigate the anxiety they have. And it was the most delightful experience I probably have ever had. We have had more than a couple volunteers say that that session was better than my 10 or 20 years of therapy. This experience has cemented my beliefs about being part of a bigger picture. You have a new understanding of, of what, what you are, that there is something sacred, there is something profoundly meaningful about you. piece of electronic chaos comes from Ollie Olsen 
Uh, Ollie Olsen is an electronic producer, has been around since the 1970s, producing since then. Uh, he's produced all sorts of music, uh, been the director of the uh, soundtrack for the Australian cult classic Dogs in Space, and been involved with numerous other projects, including co-managing uh, the electronic label Psy Harmonics. Uh, he's quite quite the name in Australia's uh, electronic music history, and he will be performing this Thursday night at Grumpy's Green as part of the Harp Media VIP sessions. Uh, if you jump on to 3cr.org.au, follow the links to the program page, you can uh, find uh, links to our Facebook, our Twitter. Jump on the Facebook. We've got uh, links there uh, to more music and more information about that event. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, digital and streaming at the website. My name's Nick, and um, during the show we do discuss a wide variety of issues around drugs, but we don't condone or condemn the use, and we aren't here to talk about abstinence nor recommend that you commit a crime. We're here to provide uh, information, um, and that's our our duty to you. And today we're talking about psilocybin mushrooms uh, and and their the, the psychedelic uh, renaissance or the psychedelic science renaissance that's occurred over the past 15 years and looking into psychedelics uh, in various uses, uh, thera- uh, therapeutic uh, especially. And this is um, all part today today's show is all part of the uh, 920 Coalition, which is a global coalition uh, of uh, organisations from around the world who are all organising events um, around uh, the psilocybin mushrooms uh, in our society and healthcare system uh, as well. And a lot of organisations have been participating in this, including the Students for Sensible Drug Policy in the US, Mexico and Canada, a group called Women and Entheogens, uh, entheogens being uh, God or divine-inducing substance which is uh, sometimes another word used for certain psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, um, mescaline, uh, these sorts of ones, which have a lot of traditional uses um, for divination in uh in, in, in cultures. Uh, also, the Psychedelic Society in the UK, uh, Psychedelic Seminars, the Entheogenic Research Integration and Education Centre, Aware Project, uh, Silence, <laughs> I'm not sure who they are, Psychedemia, which are a uh, organisation that uh, put on a conference in the US last year, and of course ourselves in Psychedelia, also a, uh, a collaborator in that project. And if you're around the uh, Melbourne slash Fitzroy area this afternoon, we'll we will be at the Fitzroy Beer Garden from 3.30 uh, to have an event talking about mushrooms. We're going to have a speaker there. Uh, oh, it's going to be hosted by PRISM, which is Psychedelic Research and Science and Medicine. Um, uh, from Martin, the president, will be hosting that. And uh, Michael uh, will be speaking a little bit about some of the local species um, of psilocybin mushroom in Australia. And then we'll be talking a little bit. Katia will be presenting on um, visionary art and the healing experience using various psychedelic substances. That's from 3.30 this afternoon at the Fitzroy Beer Garden. Uh, no no entry. We, we're hoping for uh, donations and there will be some books there as well around the uh, psilocybin mushroom. So come down and if you do want to get in contact with us uh, jump onto the, uh, onto the program page. Links there to the Facebook the Twitter and you can also find an email for us. Uh, we appreciate any comments, any complaints, any contributions that you might wish to make. We'd like to hear them. Uh, very interested. Uh, we've got about five minutes left now of the program. Uh, coming up is um, 
is uh, queer, uh, Queering the Air. They'll be on from 3 o'clock this afternoon. You can listen to In Psychedelia uh, any time of the week. There is, uh, we haven't got a podcast yet. We're, we're looking at getting that happening, but you can listen to the previous week's program uh, by jumping onto the 3CR website and uh, it'll be available there. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Thanks. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to In Psychedelia, a 3CR community radio podcast. For more information on anything you've heard in this program, head along to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the In Psychedelia program page.